0: Today, what we're gonna be talking about is, we're gonna talk about travel, okay, this idea of travel. And when I look at social media profiles and just what people post, especially maybe on Instagram, it's very clear to me what people enjoy, and that is taking pictures in exotic locations. It's all about traveling as far as possible to get a picture of yourself having an amazing time. I did a wedding last weekend, and I realized this is a habit at weddings, too, Um, during the reception the someone will say okay so i just want to record they'll they'll recognize here are the relatives that have have traveled the farthest to get here and you'll start by recognizing the people who've traveled the farthest and then if you're local it's like whatever you didn't sacrifice much right um and so and then i also recognize on any given someday it feels like maybe a a sixth to a third of our church is traveling at any given point which is great because you're young you're educated you're affluent you have disposable income to be able to go different places um I have to admit too, I enjoy travel, maybe just a different kind. I like travel with suffering, okay? I like traveling and my suffering to mix together. That's why I enjoy backpacking. And I've realized, um, the reason, one of the reasons I like backpacking is when I'm hiking on a trail, I'm going uphill, um, my mind just totally wanders away from what I'm doing. I think anytime you're experiencing some kind of pain, it's easy. you just want to escape what you're doing. And so my mind escapes from the scenery that I'm experiencing. Um, But I realized recently on a backpacking trip, a friend of mine um, told me what he thinks about as he's going uphill. And he says that he imagines he is Frodo Baggins. And he's a hobbit on an epic quest to figure out what to do with the ring. Um, And he's running from the Nazgul. And after he shared that with me, I just thought, wow, that is not what I'm thinking about (laughs) as I'm hiking. I'm thinking about everything else except for the scenery. But it really just... Uh, redid the mindset that I had when it comes to backpacking and so what we 're going to talk about today is this idea of travel and what it means and how the gospel travel whether you need to travel to the gospel or how the gospel travels to us so we're going to be um, in the book of Romans and Christy did a slide for us that I want to share with you um, that reviews kind of this outline of what Romans is about and the major theme of Romans is righteousness by faith okay and if you if you think of that as the theme then you'll see it going throughout each section, all the chapters of the book of Romans. And so you have, in the very beginning, the power of the gospel. Righteousness by faith is grounded in the power of the gospel. That's the first chapter, the first half of the first chapter. And then from the second half of the first chapter through chapter three, it's all about no one is righteous. No one is good. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. We've been, we are designed in the image of our creator, and we fall short of it. We're broken, As we said in our liturgy, we are weak. We fall short of what we're intended. We don't even follow our own conscience, much less the commandments of God. So that's this first idea. Um, No one is righteous. And second, you have this idea of righteousness righteousness by faith introduced in chapter 3 through 5. And that's this um, external—and I want to be careful to define it too much because I want to let the text define it for us. But the sense you get about righteousness is that it's something about us that is good. It's a status that we have, and it's, every, it's absolutely being innocent, but it's also being in right standing with another person, and so righteousness by faith is this ability that we can have through trusting God to have right standing with him, um, and then in Romans 6, you have righteousness in the Spirit, which is about actually behaving righteously, not only believing righteously, but being empowered to behave righteously because of what Jesus has done for us. So that's righteousness by faith. And then in chapter 8, we have suffering and future righteousness. And so uh, we have something to look forward to. There is a hope even in the midst of present suffering that we can have. And now we're in this, this section, probably the most difficult, arguably the most difficult section of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, where we're talking about, is God righteous? Is God have uh, just character in what ha- was happening with the Jews? <clears throat> because most of the Jews have rejected Christ. And so I'm going to be reading, I'm going to start in chapter 10. We covered um, chapter 9 last two weeks. I'm going to start in chapter 10. And I'm just going to walk through this chapter. And so I'll start by reading chapter, uh, verses 1 through 4. Romans 10, one through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he's talking about the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So I want to back up a second. If you look back in Romans chapter 9, Paul starts off this section by talking about his sorrow for his kinsmen. He admires the zeal, the passion, the ambition of his fellow Israelites because Paul is Jewish. Israelites are Jewish. So he's, um, he feels empathy for the plight of other Jews like him. So when he says kinsmen, he's talking about other Jews. And, but the problem is he recognizes that most Jews have not received Jesus. They don't worship, they don't worship him. They don't recognize him as Messiah and because of that, he's trying to explain how can God be righteous and his chosen people reject him. And so the first thing that he's recognizing is that he wants to, he's praying for them. He is absolutely praying for their salvation. And again, this is right after chapter 9 where he talks about vessels of honorable use and dishonorable use. We don't, he doesn't even know who is chosen, who has God chosen, because he is praying that his fellow kinsmen would be saved. The second thing you'll notice is verse two, for I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So he recognizes the passion that Israelites have for God himself. Um, And then in verse three, it says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So there's something about them that didn't understand the way God operates. And what is it that they didn't understand? Well, verse three helps us define it. If you're having trouble understanding a word in the scripture, look around the word look around the word to understand what the word means in its context. So it says for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and then verse 3 it says and seeking to establish their own establish their own. There's a concept within Romans and and a lot of Christendom where you have righteousness by faith which means believing and trusting in your heart and then you have another kind of righteousness that Paul's talking about and it's called righteousness by works. And righteousness by works is how most religious systems operate, that you get to God by behaving well, by doing good, by, you know, um, Jake and I talk with people at San Jose State every week, um, and a lot of the conversations we have is rate your certainty whether you'd go to heaven or hell. And most people say around seven, and the way they justify it is they're a good person, they don't kill anyone, um, they um, go to temple, they pray, um, they, they, they say a number of different things, but they all have to do with something you do, Something, some, some aspect of your behavior. And what Paul is saying here is that's, that's establishing your own righteousness. And last, last Sunday, I talked about being a competitive person, that I want to establish my dominance in most things, right? And that goes completely the opposite of how righteousness by faith works. Because in righteousness by works, you can brag about yourself because you're establishing your own credibility. When we talk about merit, that's what righteousness by works is. But righteousness by faith is a different paradigm. It's a different system. And the way righteousness by faith works is you trust in what Jesus has done for you. And it's not about your own merit. And you can't compare yourself to anyone else. If you do, if, the way you compare yourself to everyone else is you just say you're unworthy. You're unworthy like everyone else. That's how righteousness by faith works. And the problem is righteousness by works isn't just a temptation for other religions. It's a temptation for all religious people, including and especially the Jews. That's what Paul's is saying is that the Jews had every opportunity to receive Christ and yet they chose a righteousness by works to seek to establish righteousness based on their own behavior and credibility. And God says that is not that is not how I operate. And so I just want to address those of you who are more religious. And by when I say that, I definitely am talking about myself. I definitely have to talk about myself as a religious person. That's how I make my living. And so the higher you go up in the religious hierarchy, the greater the temptation it is to operate based on righteousness by works. If you've grown up in the church, it's easy to operate by righteousness by works. In fact, if you um, grew up going to Sunday school as a kid, most of what they teach you is righteousness by works because it's difficult to understand righteousness by faith. Because righteousness, my faith looks like Abraham. Abraham was just wandering around for like most of his life. That was Abraham's life. Righteousness, my faith is amorphous. Righteousness, my works—you know exactly how you're doing because you can scorecard it. And yet, in verse four, it says this: For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone to, who believes. And so, one of the questions you might ask is, what's "end of the law" mean? End can mean a couple things. End means the terminus. It means where you stop. End can also mean the purpose, the the end purpose. And I think in this case, it actually means both. The purpose of the law and the end of the law are righteousness by faith. Okay, and what do I mean by that? Well, when I think about laws today, I think there's the letter of the law, and then there's the spirit of the law. There's the letter of the law, and there's the spirit of the law. For instance, when um, when you are on the highway, there's a speed limit. And the speed limit is, by definition, a letter. Well, frankly, it's a number, right? The speed limit is a number, and you're supposed to follow that number. But the spirit of the speed limit, and it goes both ways, the spirit of the speed limit is that you drive safely with the flow of traffic, okay, with the flow of traffic. And on some highways, I've noticed, just personally, um, when I violate the speed limit, I'm like, well, I'm just going the flow of traffic, okay? I'm following the spirit of the law by going the flow of traffic, and I think I'm going safely 80 miles an hour. Okay, and of course you can contest that. You may say, I think you're violating the spirit. But I also recognize that when it rains and when it's overcast or foggy, that I need to go much slower than 65 because the spirit of the law is that you drive safely and you need to actually use your discernment to know what that is, okay? You need to understand what that means, okay? And so what, uh, what Paul is saying here is the end of the law, the spirit of the law is righteousness for everyone who believes because the end of the law is a person. Ultimately, what you need is not a set of rules. What you need is a person. Righteousness is personal. Okay, if Christ is the end of the law, the end the purpose of the law is meant to lead you to a person. And righteousness by faith operates by trusting in a person, not trusting in what you do. And so what I'm doing now is I'm just trying to give some mechanics of how righteousness by faith works, because I know sometimes we say that and we don't really define what it means. Now, I I do want to note, and I've said this again, I've said this before and I'll say say it again, that righteousness by faith, it is weird and it is inherently unfair, okay? It's inherently unfair. And I know a lot of us are very concerned, and God is too, with fairness, Okay, fairness. And when I say fairness, I mean justice. That evil is punished. But the way that righteousness by faith works is that you're inherently unrighteous and you deserve punishment for that unrighteousness, but you receive mercy. Righteousness by faith operates based on mercy, and that is unfair. And so, again, when I've talked to Muslim students at San Jose State, um, there was a whole, we had a whole debate where um, some of these Muslim guys were like, why would I ever become a Christian? Why, if I became a Christian, then I would just already be good. I would just be told that I'm good because of what Jesus has done for me. What incentive would I have to continue to behave well? Because in their system, it's righteousness by works. You need to behave well in order to have salvation and be justified. But that's not the way righteousness by faith works. And they were like, what is the incentive then for me to behave well if I already have status with God? And I think it's a great question. That's what Romans 6 is answering that you have been made new, you're a different person now. That's why you behave well. God has saved you. He's redeemed you. He's changed you into his child, his son and daughter, and you behave differently because of that. So let me keep going. This is verse 5. I'm going to read 5 through 7. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness by faith, based on faith, says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Okay, this is difficult. I'm I'm just going to actually keep reading so we get the whole section. Let's go to eight. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth... And in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So let's go back to verse five. He's talking about Moses, and throughout all of this section, Romans 9 through 11, Paul repeatedly references the Old Testament, because what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to make an argument for righteousness by faith from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures, because there is no New Testament at this time. He's got to argue based on the Old Testament, which is what he's also doing in Romans 4. And so he's trying to explain Moses, who's one of the most famous prophets in Israelite history, writes about the righteousness that is based on law, And back in, he's referencing Deuteronomy 30, when the Israelites are about to enter into the promised land, and after God has given, through Moses, the Ten Commandments on the tablets, he says, the righteousness by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. These little parentheticals, that is to bring Christ down, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, just ignore them for now. If you hit something that you're reading and you don't, you have no idea what it's talking about, it's okay, just skip it, okay, just skip it. Go, you can come back to it. What I would say is you can bookmark it and come back to it. It's okay to leave it. There's a lot of stuff like that in the Bible where you're like, I don't know what's going on here. Keep reading. Don't let it trip you up. Don't let it be an obstacle to you. Keep reading and then come back to it. If You, need, you may need to come back to it repeatedly. You may have some working idea of what it means and you think it's wrong. That's okay. That's okay. The important thing is when you read the Bible, it's okay to keep going. It's okay to, to not understand something. Um, definitely ask someone and ask a question about it. So, um, if most Bibles will also tell you that it's coming from Deuteronomy 30. And Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14, I think I may have it. Perfect. Um, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it too far off. So you're missing that context, right? It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it. Okay. So um, I want to return to this idea of travel and this idea of at what kind of length is it possible to go somewhere. And when it talks about heavens, oftentimes when it talks about heavens in both the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament and sometimes the New, they mean the sky, to go as far up as possible. And so the farthest you can go is into space, right? The farthest you can go into space and say, you don't have to go into space for this. You don't have to go into space. But if you did want to go into space, what would it take? What would it take to go into space? Today, you know, according in 2022, it costs $55 million per person to go on a SpaceX flight to the space station. So it'll cost about $55 million. I think the cost has actually gone down from that. So it's going to be more affordable. Maybe like, I don't know, 10 to $15 million. okay? So it's, it's possible. It's possible to happen. Um, it, he also says who will descend into the abyss, okay? You can descend into the abyss. You can go into the very depths of the ocean right? And if you want to, that costs um, also a lot more. Where's my, where's my price tag? It costs 250000 so a lot cheaper. If you want to be in a submersible like the Titan, it costs $250,000, right? But there are some risks involved. There are some risks involved with, um, with being in a submersible. But the, the point is, anything that it, whenever you want to go a really long distance, there is a risk involved. That's why we recognize people who travel long distances, because they took a risk. And travel now is a lot easier than it was in the time that the scripture was written. But what's Paul's point here? You don't have to cross the barrier of geography to get to the Word of God. You don't have to go on a pilgrimage. And really, that's what we're looking for today when we think about travel. Yes, yes, we want to see an exotic location, but really, For a lot of us, travel is like self-actualization because people use this language. When you travel, you find yourself and you find out who you really are when you travel because it's not about just going someplace new. It's about stripping away the distractions and noise of the life that bombards us in this time and space. When you travel, you get to find a part of yourself, the real you, you could say. And what Paul is saying is you don't have to do that you don't have to go on a pilgrimage. You know, for pastors, it's all about visiting the Holy Lands and going back to Israel. That is like the pilgrimage that Christians, like the super Christians are supposed to do, or to travel lots of miles as a as a missionary. You know, my parents have, they have lots of Christian points. Um, like you give frequent flyer miles to, uh, um, to Christians who travel. Um, I asked my dad to calculate this after he's retired and doing these overseas discipleship conferences. They've logged 800,000 miles. He said they've logged 800,000 miles of flying. So he's like in the Christian frequent flyer club, right? That's not a thing. Um, But Paul's point here is that you don't have to go to those lengths. You don't have to do something extraordinary to get to the word of God. There's There's no distance you need to travel. There's no work you need to do. There's no special privilege. What God has done is he has brought the word to you. He has delivered it to you. And we recognize the, what technology does for us today is what the word of God has been doing uh, for a long, long time, to deliver it to your doorstep. That's what technology does today. It removes, it overcomes the barrier of geography. But what, and what Paul is saying here is there is no barrier of geography for the word of God to get to you. You don't need to go anywhere. And I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I, I like the travel. Like right now, the church retreat is only 40 minutes away right? And, I, and sometimes I'm like, that's too close because some of you are like, we're just going to stay home and then commute. I'm like, no, I want you to go there and I want you to stay because I want us to be like this, this, this unit. You know what I mean? I want us to be this community. And the only way we can do that is if we strip everything away, we strip everything away from you, your kids. And no, I'm just kidding. You know, you know, we strip some things away so that you're not distracted and we can be together, right? Because that's what travel is. That's what travel does. But what Paul is saying is, I want to come to you. I'm going to meet you exactly where you are. Romans 10.8 says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And so what's Paul's point here? Uh, The word of God comes to you. It comes to your mouth and to your heart. And what I think is fascinating about that, it is both inward and it is both outward. Okay, the, the mouth is external, And the heart is the innermost part of yourself. And what Paul is saying is it starts with something that goes on inside of you, and then it makes its way out into what you say. And both are important because it reflects the words that you say. The words that you say reflect what is going on inside of you. And this is very specific in verse 9. It says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he gives this specific, almost like faith formulation for what the gospel is. What it means to have faith is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the essence of the gospel, which means the good news of Jesus. That's what you believe in your heart and it comes out. And I think this is important. I've been thinking about uh, something very innocent, well, seemingly innocent, like the Pledge of Allegiance. And I have a friend who, he's, he's an American, and yet he served for 20 years overseas as a missionary, and after coming back to the United States, he no longer says the Pledge of Allegiance. He doesn't say the Pledge of Allegiance. When I first heard that, I was like, wow, that's, that's kind of offensive as an, as an American to not say the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, but he's like, you know, I, I, I only pledge allegiance to one person. And the way that a Roman citizen would have understood confessing that Jesus is Lord— Is Because you're supposed to confess Caesar is Lord. When you're a Roman citizen, you confess with your mouth that Caesar is Lord. And Paul is saying something radical here. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He is the opposite of Caesar. He's the anti-Caesar. Okay, He is the Lord. And so this is not only a spiritual statement. This is also a political statement that Paul is claiming what it means to recognize Jesus as Lord. And so that means that it has reign over all your life. Because it's not just Jesus is Lord of this aspect. Jesus is Lord over my life for two hours on Sunday. No, Jesus is Lord over everything, over every aspect. That's what this means. And you believe in your heart that God raised, from the dead, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what it means to believe the gospel. Um, verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So, those heart and mouth are aligned with each other. One confesses, one believes, one is justified, and one is saved. They're all, they're all related. They're all connected to each other. Let's move to verse 11. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me keep reading in 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those preach the good news. So let's go back to verse 11. It says for the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And what I said earlier is when you encounter a word that's repeated often in the scripture, especially one like righteousness, which is super important, be careful to give it your own meaning. At least recognize when you give it your own working definition, but allow the text to help you understand what that meaning is. So what is righteousness? Well, earlier it said It's been talking about what it means to be justified and what it means to be saved. Justification, I think, is a synonym for being righteous. So verse eleven says, "For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame." So what then is the definition of justification or being righteous? It is the opposite of being put to shame. And what's shame? Shame is experiencing dishonor. Shame is being rejected. Shame is being found less or lesser or unworthy. That's what shame is. And so then what is righteousness? Righteousness is then being given status. It been being given value. It is being given honor. That's what righteousness means. And that's, in, that, in that sense, it's always relational because shame is always relational. You can't feel ashamed by yourself. It's shame is something you experience in front of other people because you want to hide yourself. So righteousness is something relational and has to do with being honored, being given value, and found worthy. That's what righteousness means based on this context. And then verse 12 says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. No distinction between Jew and Greek. Um, you, and what, what's the point here is because both of them have access to God. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. And then it goes into this extensive, like working backwards. How can someone confess? How can someone call on the Lord if they don't believe? That's in verse 14. And how can they believe if they haven't heard the gospel, if no one's given them the gospel? And how can they hear without someone preaching? And how do you preach unless you are sent? And then it has this interesting statement, how, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? And so the Christian life has something very interesting about it. There's actually, there's actually two quests going on in the Christian life. There's two quests going on. The first quest is not initiated by us. In fact, we have nothing to do with it. It is God's initiation. God sent Jesus to come down for us. The first quest is God looking and pursuing us. That's the first quest. And he finds us. And then the second quest is that you get commissioned. Is that you get commissioned and you get sent. You are found worthy and you are chosen. Not because of any merit of yourself, but you are chosen to then go on a quest to tell others. So your quest starts with God's quest for you. That's how it operates. Um, <laughs> we have to go back to Lord of the Rings now. Okay. Frodo Baggins asked the question to Gandalf. Why was I chosen? Such questions cannot be answered, said Gandalf. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess. I wish it didn't have a double negative, but it's okay. I think what he's saying is, it's not anything about you as a hobbit. You are little and disregarded and pretty much ineffectual in combat. You basically can do nothing in a battle. You do nothing, right? You bring no value add, and yet you have been chosen. So the quest finds you worthy. Do I have a picture of a hobbit? Oh, I do. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. What's happening up there the whole time while I was saying that? Okay. Um, and then one thing you'll notice about hobbits is, and they, they make a big deal of it because they wear prosthetic feet in the movies, right? Um, hobbits have super ugly feet. They're super ugly, like they're super hairy. There's like hair all over them and are super big toes. Um, and that's why they have these prosthetic feet. Um, and then they don't wear shoes, so they're always showing off their feet. Sometimes I don't want to wear sandals because my, my toes are like super nasty and ugly. Um, but a lot of times it's easy to be ashamed of one's feet, but hobbits like show off their feet um, and they go on these quests, right? And so, what am I I saying here? Where where is he going with this? Where is he going with this? You are not worthy about any merit. You have also been commissioned on a quest. And what the world says is ugly, what the world says is disregarded, what the world says is lowly, as the disciples were, is beautiful in the eyes of Jesus. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I get it, hobbits don't preach the good news. You are the hobbits, okay? (laughs) You are the hobbits, you are the hobbits. You are the ones that the world disregards and neglects and says, I don't care about these people, but you have beautiful feet because you have been sent and you have been chosen. Okay. Um, and so what does this mean? What is this, what is this section saying? How beautiful are the, are the feet of those who preach the good news? You have been commissioned as a messenger. And the message is actually very simple. It is to believe in your heart, It's to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You just have to use that one verse. And I know the gospel is way more than that, but it's not less than that. It's not less than verse nine. You just start with verse nine and you tell someone. You speak the gospel with words. And now I I know our life group, um, our application this past week was to invite someone to church. I think that's a fantastic application. I'm gonna talk about that. That is absolutely being a messenger. So that is absolutely included in this process of Having beautiful feet, that you are sent to invite others, to invite them to church, to invite them to life group. You can also tell someone the story of the gospel, because the gospel came to you. Now, let me um, let me talk about what I think the gospel means ultimately. When I when we said that the Lord, the word is near, let's go back to uh, what is it? Uh, Verse eight. If you go back, verse eight. But what does it say? The Lord, the word is near. When I say the word is near, what I think the gospel ultimately is about is accessibility. The gospel is about accessibility. And what is accessibility? It means removing barriers. It is about removing barriers because geography, for most of the ancient world, was an incredible barrier. But geography is not a barrier now. We have other barriers. And as you look through the gospel, you'll notice that God is continually removing barriers to the gospel so that those who are neglected, those who are overlooked, could be able to have it, would be able to receive it. And so the sharing prompt today, the sharing prompt that I want to ask is tell the story of how God overcame a barrier to preach the good news to you. Because you'll notice even in this section, it says in verse 12, for instance, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. One of the barriers that Paul is wanting to um, overcome Recognize that the gospel overcomes is this ethnic division between the chosen people of God, the Jews who have the law, and Gentiles who do not have the law. And God is like, I'm going to erase that barrier. I'm going to overcome that barrier so that both groups could have access to the gospel. And so you can speak the story of how God has overcome an obstacle and a barrier in reaching you. And so let me share one example for me um, when I was in fifth grade. So this is a long, this is a long time ago. You don't have to share a fifth grade example, but it's, it's the one that started me on a journey to meeting Jesus. Um, we were in class watching a movie and it was dark and, uh, I decided this is a good opportunity to pick my nose because no one can see what's going on. I may have told the story before. And so I was picking my nose in the back of class and then two girls just happened to look back at me and, and see me, they catch me while I'm picking my nose. Um, and then after school that day, I'm walking home, and of course, those two girls see me, and they yell um, across the street, actually. That was kind of rude. They didn't have to yell across the street. But they yell and point, nose picker, nose picker. And, uh, and I have a friend, his name's Joe Lowe, and Joseph Lowe, and he stood up for me, and he said, he said to them, everyone picks their nose. Leave them alone. Everyone picks their nose. And I was like, that's not like the best like, defense. It's not like the best offense, but you know what? I will take it. I will take it. And you know, I think a couple weeks later, he invited me um, to his church's youth group. And that was where I heard the gospel for the first time, where I heard about this idea of God existing and just, it blew my mind. But what he did was he overcame a barrier of shame for me. He overcame a barrier of shame, of rejection. Um, And I know in all your stories, someone told you the gospel. I don't know who it was. It could have been your parents or someone at church or a friend of yours, but someone told you the gospel. And they told it to you in a way that actually crossed a barrier for you. And I know in some of your stories, it created a barrier for you. But if you're here today, I bet there are people who've communicated, who've spoken the gospel to you, and it crossed, it overcame a barrier for you to be able to receive it. Because that's what God is in the business of doing, and that is why he sent his son. And so this past week, um, it's actually really hard for me um, to both invite someone to church, which I did, Um, And also just share a little bit of my story. It was super hard. I did it with two of my neighbors and it was just really, actually really difficult. And so I I can empathize if it's difficult, but I also realize, you know, that's what God has been doing with me his entire life. My entire life, he's been trying to reach me and pursue me. And so let me just just read, I didn't read the whole passage. Let me read the whole passage. Let me start with verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. This is the quotation that Natalie shared from the psalm. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What's the point here? God has been pursuing Israel through the entire course of that nation's history. He's been chasing them, He's been uh, leading them. He's been coming down to them. He's been holding out his hands. His voice has gone out into the entire world. And it's been said, you can lead a horse to water. You can bring water to a horse. You can bring a water to Israel, but you cannot make him drink. You cannot make him drink. And so ultimately, it is the heart decision that we each have to decide whether we want to receive and trust Jesus. And there are barriers, most of all, barriers in our heart to receive that. And God wants to break them down. And so you are the recipient of a quest today. You are a a recipient of Christ's quest to reach you. And you're here today because someone spoke the gospel to you. And you were also chosen for an epic quest to speak the gospel to others. You have the second quest because of the first. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the journey that you undertook to reach us that by your life and walking in our shoes, by your death and sacrifice for our sins, and by your resurrection, which overcame the greatest barrier, that is death, we can have life with you, and that your quest is successful. And so Lord, now that you have reached us, Lord, would, you, would we recognize that we have been chosen not, not out of any merit of ourselves, but because of your great mercy, you've raised us to life and sent us out as messengers. And that even though the world may disregard us as ugly, little, ineffective in a fight, how beautiful are our feet that bring good news. We pray this in your name. Amen.